parfait. It's match day six, the last of the first set of fixtures, the first of the second set of fixtures. A confusing start to uh, the next Italia 90 podcast. We're going to start, as I said, finish off the first round of fixtures, Uruguay, Spain. And, and we've generally given you a background on most of the teams for each of these. So I'm going to start in with a little bit of that again, because I suppose you look at the two of these and neither are really a footballing force at this point. There's probably fairly good contrasts in that Uruguay were certainly a force of the past and, and Spain a force of the future. Certainly Uruguay faded quite badly around the 50s or, or around that time, although did manage to get a reasonably good performance in the 1970 World Cup tournament, finishing fourth at the time. But they weren't really loved, adored the way previous teams were. And, and it's at this point where they've, they've probably got the rep- reputation that, that sticks around until this day for being fairly dirty or aggressive or niggly fouls, that kind of stuff. In Mexico 86 is probably where this originated. They had the fastest ever World Cup red card, Jose Baptiste against Scotland in the first minute of the game. It was a pretty nasty game overall. There's a great quote from the Scottish FA Secretary Ernie Walker on this in the, in the Cambridge Companion to Football. He says, there was no game of football here today. We found ourselves on the field with cheats and cowards and we associated with the scum of world football. <laughs> Very, very harsh, I thought. Uh, the, this indiscipline, I'm sure we'll remember this as well, lads. This would have certainly continued over the, the next decade, decade in Italian football with some of the Uruguayans featuring. Anyone remember Pablo Montero? I do. Doesn't he still hold the Serie A record for red cards or something? Exactly where I was going to go, yeah. So <laughs> this tournament, last tournament, and then the legend uh, that is Pablo Montero. I suppose they earned the reputation, certainly in, in the Scottish uh, FA's eyes anyway. Spain, meanwhile, you look at them around this point. And I will say this probably this is probably a little bit of a neglected area era of Spanish football. They were sort of perennial underachievers, people who who don't really know much about Spain by the recent years, of course. They they really didn't do a whole lot. I mean they won a European championship in nineteen sixty four and that was to be their only major title in about forty five years. Uh, they did, if you go way, way back between sort of Spanish Civil War and, and World War Two, they missed out on quite a few tournaments in thirty four to fifty. More recently, I suppose they've been a bit of an upward curve. They got to the quarterfinals in, in Mexico 86. I, I wonder a little bit, guys, is this era of sort of international Spanish football sort of neglected because, it, you know, you're more focused on club events and, and more particularly the sort of Catalonian identity coming to, coming to head quite a lot in, in Spain because, of course, Johan Cruyff took over a shoddy enough looking Barcelona in 88 managed to win the Copa del Rey to sort of nearly keep him in the job, which is funny when, when people talk about, you know, Fergie winning this or that to keep him in the job. There was a little touch of that about Cruyff as well. And he goes on, obviously, to build, to build quite a legacy. So I wonder, is it, is it nearly a little bit neglected or forgotten about this era of Spanish football? They wouldn't have been high hopes coming into this, I wouldn't have thought for them. Well, they had qualified ahead of Ireland very comfortably enough, actually, in, in, um, in Ireland's qualifying group. And they were seen as a very, as a very formidable opponent. They beat Ireland 2-0 in Seville uh, could have been a lot more. Um, so they were certainly seen as a team with you know, plenty of attacking talent and flair, but there was that stereotype that Spanish teams just didn't, didn't turn up on the big stage. Um, I think also the fact that Milan had beaten, had beaten Real Madrid 5-1, I think 5-1 in one leg, and I think it might have been 9-2 overall 
in the European Cup in 1989 was a bit of a shock to the system for Spanish football. And there was a lot of kind of recrimination and where is our football going? Uh, where, where is everything going wrong? But when you look at the team they put out, I mean, a lot of them are club level in Spain are still legends. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it, is a, it is something of an, of an overlooked and underrated Spanish setup. It's probably notable as well. I mean, I mentioned Cruyff there in around 88 and of course he comes to quite a bit of prominence sort of after this and, and Barcelona very much do again the idea that Barcelona were this force back then just would not have been the case and, and they really do go on to become that under Cruyff and, and it's probably notable as well when I say the Catalonian independence coming out quite a bit Barcelona of course hosted the 92 Olympics and Spain's under 23 side were, were involved in that winning a gold medal which is pretty significant for a couple of reasons actually I suppose because Pep Guardiola's inside and that's sort of his emergence after this tournament, and I suppose why he symbolises the Catalan- Catalonians. And then because, really, the national team never played games in Barcelona. I think it was about up to five at that point. Sure, their history games had been played in, in Barcelona, which is crazy. Timely as well, I suppose, just when I mentioned the 92 Olympics there, on that 92 Spain under-23 side, which is, is a pretty interesting side if you go through it, Luis Enrique and all in there as well. But... That would have been, for people who watched The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, that was the Olympics where the US sent all their NBA all-stars, like Jordan and Magic Johnson, to the Olympics and obviously won the gold. And that team was known as the Dream Team. And, and the Spanish sort of adopted that for the 92 football team. So just when we're looking at this team, I feel it's probably a little bit neglected because there's such a big deal made of the teams after it and the indeed the club teams around that point, how Madrid would have dominated. And this is the start of Barcelona coming back into things. But that is a little bit of a background on each of those nations. Let's get into the game itself. I mean, this is our first, I think I'm right in saying this is our first scoreless draw of the tournament, but it was actually plenty eventful. And both sides had, had pretty reasonable chances, a lot of efforts sort of from outside the box, mind you. So there wasn't a whole lot of interplay. It was Manolo and Vasquez for Spain, a lot of joy down the flanks. I think I'm going to use the, the best nickname in, in uh, world football, the Red Fury. Spain's nickname, love that. But the Red Fury had um, Zubizarreta to thank for for quite a lot of it. He, he was called into action a lot, notably pushing Almazetti's drive onto the bar. And really, uh, I mean, Ruben Sosa, we have to get a little bit of background on him here. I mean, he set up El Zamandi for this effort with, with what, what was a little bit of uh, Claudio Kinesia inspiration without the severity of uh, being kicked up in the air. I suppose he sort of, he goes by three Spanish players who, who tried clip him each time and Again, he looks like he's stumbling, he looks like he's stumbling, but he manages to dribble by and make the pass. But ultimately, after all the talk of Uruguay's gamesmanship, I suppose, it's, it's Spain's defender, Villarroya, who handles it off the line in sort of modern reference for that. It's Luis Suarez fashion. He just, like, Jose Herrera's header's going in. He just straight up smacks it off the line with his hand. And Sosa, who's, who's such a big player, as I mentioned there, he's, he was the top scorer in qualifying for Uruguay. He was also the player of the tournament in the previous Copa America unfortunately he skies the resulting penalty Uruguay feel a little bit disappointed a little bit gutted not to have, have had the two points on the board because I mean they had the better chances they had the penalty and they had probably the best player on the field who, who goes on to, to miss the penalty so nil-nil in that one I thought it was funny in terms of the the decision I suppose to give the penalty um, the fact that Villaroya wasn't sent off which was seemed to be kind of the yeah. The order of the day because it reminded me of I don't know if anyone's seen um, the 1978 World Cup where um, Mario Kempes who turned out to be the, the player of the tournament scored the most goals and everything there was a very similar kind of Suarez incident with him in the game against Poland which probably without 
that handball on the line, they would have lost the game and been knocked out and never would have won the World Cup. I guess it kind of shows the, the emphasis of refereeing has maybe changed and maybe uh, become a bit more fair in recent years. It's actually a lot of kind of important changes to the laws and changes in emphasis as much as anything happened immediately after this tournament. So I think as we mentioned on the previous pod, um, the, the offside rule was scheduled to change the following season so that no lo- you'd no longer be offside if you were level, um, which I think actually comes into play a good bit in this tournament. There's a lot of goals disallowed that wouldn't have been disallowed a few months later. But also the emphasis on professional fouls being an automatic red card is something that comes in immediately after this tournament. So I think, yeah, yeah a couple of months later, that he would have been straight off for that. It seems the professional fouls immediate red card was always in place for Cameroon, but nobody else. <laughs> One nil to the Cameroons called for desperate measures from Argentina against the Soviet Union in their second match in Naples. The old handball expert was up to his tricks again. We saw it, but not the referee. Well, next we go to Argentina, USSR. This game absolutely rocking, and the reason why is because it's in Naples, and of course the lads uh, who have decided to follow Maradona for this World Cup. Questionable how many there are, but the Italians who have decided to follow Maradona rather than Italy for the World Cup are, are here, are loud, and they're uh, very much looking forward to seeing Diego try and fix things. And I'm sure there's quite a lot of Italians who've gone after a poor start from Argentina to sort of boo Diego and see Argentina getting knocked out by the USSR here. How do they get on in this, Dave? Yeah, it's one of those we were talking about, um, probably the first game in terms of Argentina and maybe some of the myths that have been going around about how... You know, Maradona had managed to unite the entire city of Naples against Italy. But I suppose it came to the test in this game when, when Argentina rocked up in Naples. You call it his adopted home, where he was, he had so much success with Napoli and was, I guess, under pressure coming in as the as a World Cup champion to sort of uh, replicate that. But I think this this is far from a straightforward game for for either side. Both lost their first games. Argentina, you know, had unexpectedly lost against Cameroon on the opening day and Soviet Union had been quite handily put away from Romania. So Argentina probably got a, an unexpected slice of luck earlier on when their, when their World Cup winning goalkeeper, Pompido, who had been so outrageously inefficient in the first game when he, when he let in the goal for Cameroon that ultimately lost him the game. He was injured. Goikachea came on and uh, I don't know if that's a, that was a sign of things turning in their favour in this tournament. Goals in either half and Troglio and Burachaga led them to a fairly comfortable win, particularly after Bessinov was sent off early in the second half for the Soviet Union who um, two years earlier in in 1988 in Germany they had a, had a much better tournament. There. They kind of meekly bowed out this one on, on this afternoon in Naples. When you say that they had a, a slice of luck. I mean, very rarely when your goalkeeper breaks his leg would you say you've had a slice of luck there. But I think given that, as you said, Gorkache has come in, I think very shortly after that, or maybe a little bit later in the game, he, he's straight up for you know a couple of double saves. Like He, he really does put in quite a shift. Considering Pompidou absolutely chucked one in against Cameroon, mm. you, you would say too many people, I'm sure we're feeling sorry for Pompidou, but... Uh, can't have been too unhappy ultimately at, at the way he probably should have been dropped after that game to be quite honest you know what I mean well I said slice of luck because I'm an optimist I think um, you know when your goalkeeper breaks his leg uh, it's just an opportunity for your for your, your next goalkeeper to what I'm not saying break is his I'm, leg and not throw the ball into the net what I'm saying is Pompidou I don't think would be happy to hear acknowledged as a slice of luck I tell you what I don't think he's noted. listening Dick I tell you what should be noted um, it, it's not really in the hi- some of the highlights and it doesn't seem to have been reported all that much but let me tell you the BBC's uh, retrospective look back at this game 
gets right into Maradona handballing it off the line. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't I haven't checked it just yet, but I'm sure it got plenty of airtime on Saint and Greavesy when they were doing their World Cup roundups uh, around that time as well, because yeah, they they were not happy with with El Diego. It's a sort of it's one of those mm-hmm. sort of hits him in the, near the shoulder, his arm sticking out. It's definitely a handball. So well, in fairness to Maradona himself, acknowledged that afterwards, um, but he was very keen to distinguish it from the hand of God. He said it, it was an accident. An accident is not the same thing as cheating. But uh, this was referee Edric, Eric Fredrickson's last appearance at this World Cup, understandably. Fair enough. So Nevi, I thought it was football. interesting that uh, Kinesia, we, we all talked about him in the first game against Cameroon, the fact that he seemed to be... Um, uh, a magnet for red cards. He just anytime he picked up the ball, he was so elusive, so so quick that people just seemed to be be naturally drawn towards kicking him. And it, it did the exact same thing in this game. And I believe um, uh, Bessonov's red card in the end was for a foul on Kanija. So it's kind of a yeah. Kanija's. It's like Kanija's special move. It's like do you know is it in that episode of Simpsons where Homer can just take a beating. Like his exoskeleton is 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 able to take such a punishment. That's like Kanija's just special move. He's just able to. Take such a kick in and and have opponents sent off. For- well, he kind of reminds me of uh, Ken from Street Fighter. <laughs> you know, it's just you know he's running past and well, Blanca comes out of nowhere and just you know two foots him. <laughs> Very in keeping with the nineties theme there, Dave. Good stuff. We mentioned how USSR were were unlucky with the penalty. I mean, fair enough for the first goal. It's a great cross by who I thought was Maradona originally looking back, but it's Julio. Uh, Alerta Choa, or Alerta Cochea, I think, who's got a, a weirdly similar sort of stubby-looking profile to Maradona at that stage. I think he's a little bit taller. But the second goal is absolutely outrageous that it's stood. I mean, we, we have to talk about that. I, the, the, is, is, I can't remember who it is. It might have been Kanija's fouled. And as he's on his way down, he grabs the ball. The Soviet player then kicks it backwards, presumably, I don't know, being angry that he's fouled him. You've also got... For a Chaga who's standing offside, but the Soviet player kicks it back to him, and it's somehow allowed to go on. He slots it in. I mean, definitely a handball there. He's grabbed the ball as he lands on top of it. Again, I'm surprised the BBC retrospective didn't pile in on that one as well. Just giving them more and more sort of ammo for this Argentina are impervious to handballs type situation. So that's two games we've run through there. We've got more coming up tomorrow. Let's quickly check in with the Irish camp then before we move on. Sherlock, how are we? How are we looking? We're looking a little bit up in the air in terms of team selection. There's, there's a big clamour from the press um, coming to make some fairly sweeping changes to the team that drew with England for this upcoming game against Egypt. Um, a lot of people in the press are calling for Chris Hewton to be brought in to replace Steve Staunton, which surprises me somewhat. I just think Staunton's a, a more dynamic player. He'd really shown his worth in, in the qualifiers. Hmm. Um, but you know, Hewton obviously still has his supporters among the media, and um, there's just probably as many people calling for Dave O'Leary to be brought into the side in place of Kevin Moran, which strikes me as a spectacularly bad idea when you have a, a, a central defensive partnership that no one another so well to change it in the middle of a World Cup with a guy who hasn't really been first choice for a long time. But Otherwise, it's all about Ronnie Whelan. Again, I think his his kind of his class and pedigree somewhat similar to Liam Brady during the year or two previously uh, has earned him an awful lot of supporters and followers in, in the media and the Irish support. Um, but it really looks as though injury issues notwithstanding that he might 
he's unlikely to come in. Um, I think Charlton is very eager on that Townsend-McGrath partnership. Mm. Um, there's some kind of wild speculation that Whelan might come in at, at right-back or left-back in place of <laughs> Staunton or... Either, it doesn't matter. Morris. How are we going to fit Hewton and Whelan into that left-back position, eh? Well, exactly. Well, the thinking is that I think that the, the biggest lobbyist for Whelan to go into midfield, McGrath to go to right back, Hewton to go to left back, and uh, yeah, Chris Morris to be to be consigned to oblivion. If, if um, I know Jack, if I know Jack Charlton, he'll definitely be looking to shift that team all over the place and make huge <laughs> sweeping changes. You know, when I put Townsend at left back, he's got the sweetest left foot. <laughs> But then he'd be taking his pal Chris Hewton's position after Chris talking him up, you know. So and put Chris in midfield. Put um, put Cascarino right back. <laughs> Cas- Cascarino played centre half for Ireland in a benefit game in Dundalk shortly after one of the nineteen ninety qualifiers, and a goal resulted from Tony Cascarino swashbuckling his way forward from a centre half position, which is again one of those events that you feel indicates that somewhere around this time the world slipped into some kind of parallel universe but uh, <laughs> apparently it happened just to touch briefly on on we probably didn't know a whole lot of background on Dave O'Leary and how he just was not really part of Jack's plans all too often I mean he, he didn't he pretty much when Jack took over or when Jack took over essentially he had like a, nearly a, a year or two year period out of the team he'd be one of those players who'd be feeling very very hard done by this Basically, what had happened was they'd fallen out in 86 over Charlton's first trip away with the Irish team, which was to a triangular tournament in Iceland. Um, O'Leary refused to cancel a family holiday, and obviously that didn't go well with Jack Charlton. I think the fact that O'Leary was a somewhat outspoken Tory supporter as well possibly rubbed Charlton up the wrong way. But yeah, he was effectively exiled from the team until probably about 89 um, he played in that defeat in Seville, but he played in midfield. It was an injury-ravaged team, didn't play well. He was in some ways lucky to be in the squad in the sense that Charlton didn't kind of suffer, if not fools, then antagonists very gladly. But yeah, it is. He was, I'm sure he was, he was a classier player and a slightly younger player than Kevin Moran. But uh, other than that, I, I, I don't think he had much of a claim. Yeah, so we can get Dave, Andy Townsend, Chris Hewton, Ronnie Whelan, get them all in. What else uh, is happening sort of around Ireland at that time? There's, there's a bit of a stir by the looks of it down at Malahide Castle, Turla. There is. Um, Ireland is hosting a major EU summit banquet at Malahide Castle. And somewhat controversially, this caused a lot of controversy in the Dáil, actually. Pat McCartan and a few other deputies raised it. Raised it. The Derry Naflan chalice is going to be displayed on the dining table. You know, this priceless artifact of Irish history. Um, and the government is assuring us that it will be displayed and treated with dignity. And we don't actually, if Helmut Kohl did throw up in it, that story hasn't come to light, but um, I think that was one of the concerns people had. But yeah, that was a, that was, that controversy was raging in the doll in, in between shoehorned references to the World Cup. I can't say I'm, I'm overly familiar with all of the historic um, details of, of the Darren of Land chalice but essentially it just looks like a, a you know a big sam mcguire or something isn't it i think that's that's the danger is that people mistake it for a champagne bucket or something yeah i, I would have said some sort of ga trophy it looks very very you know looks very sam mcguire anyway it's a bit very irish references for people who might be listening outside of ireland 
That's it for game day six. Tomorrow we look forward to Yugoslavia versus Colombia, Cameroon versus Romania, and host Italy in action once again. They take on the USA. I will pick who I like, and I'll say what I like. And if I wanted to say something that I didn't like, I would if I wanted, but I don't, so I won't. Yeah, I phoned David up and I said to him, do you want to come? And he said, uh, no, I've booked me time on holiday. I'm going on holiday. I said, well, you know, you could do with coming. But I didn't really need David, and I told him that. The Irish press did not understand why I didn't pick David O'Leary. And I said, well, I don't need him. I didn't need him. But I said, when I do need him, I'll call him up and bring him in. And then it happened that I did need him, and I called him up and brought him in. And if I wanted to pick somebody that I didn't like, I would if I wanted, but I don't. So I won't. So uh, what you're saying is, Jack, if you would pick 